0: And If you have your Bibles with you today, would you take them and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. It is now officially the Christmas season. There are four Sundays in Advent as we prepare our hearts and our minds and our houses and our families for the Christmas season that is coming upon us. And as we do so, I want us to take some time this year to go back to the very beginning of the story, that is the book of Genesis, and to see in this book more about Jesus. I want us to learn about Christ by going to Genesis. So this is perhaps a little contrarian, we're not going to be going to the uh, wise men in Matthew or the shepherds and Luke or any of the very traditional Christmas stories that we know so well, but nevertheless what I want to do for these Christmas sermons is to preach primarily about Jesus. And to do that in this case, by going to the book of Genesis, all the way back to the beginning of the story, after all, if we were to go to Luke chapter 3, as a part of his explanation of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he gives us the genealogy as a way of explaining who Jesus is. He says, you don't really understand who Jesus is unless you understand where he's come from. And he traces that genealogy all the way back to Genesis. He goes back to Adam, and indeed Luke goes one step beyond, and he says he was the son of Adam the Son of God. And so we're going to go back to the roots of the story in the book of Genesis, because I do believe you can't truly understand the story of Jesus unless you understand why he came, why he matters, what he has done for us, what problem he came to solve. And to to get there, we need to begin in the beginning. We need to look at the book of Genesis. And so today we're going to read Genesis chapter 3 occasionally called the worst chapter in the Bible, and yet it's also a chapter that has hope in it, and it's the first place where we begin to see God's mercy and his grace and his promises to his people. So uh, in the bulletin, I have uh, taken out part of it for the sake of space. Uh, Verses 16 through 19 are missing, but I'm going to go ahead and read the entire chapter, including what's not printed in the bulletin, so it might be easiest to follow along in your Bibles. Uh, If you would, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word today? This is the word of the Lord in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east end of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Father, in this chapter we have so much to learn. The sin of our first parents, their disobedience from which the curse was given, but also the grace and the mercy of our Lord. As you come both with judgment and also with mercy, we ask that, Father, you will bless our time as we... Read, study, meditate on this portion of your word. We ask that you will open the eyes of our hearts, that we might truly be drawn more closely to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that as Adam and Eve, when they heard that first promise, that we might respond with faith, that we might hear and that we might believe, and in looking to our Savior, we might find joy. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This chapter that we've read is famous not only for being the story of the first sin and disobedience in which Adam and Eve fall from the righteous state in which they were created, in which they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. It's also famous for being the first promise of the good news. verse 15 that we read includes these words that the Lord speaks even as he's speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman." Between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Looking at that verse for centuries, theologians have found in that line the first promise of the gospel that from the offspring of the woman would come one who would bruise the head of the serpent. There is so much good, solid hope and doctrine that comes from this passage, and I want us to see some of that today but my big picture goal in looking at this passage is to help us to see Jesus to come to a greater understanding of why Jesus came why he lived why he died what he has accomplished for us and to help us as we approach this holiday season to grow in our love for Christ that's the big picture goal that's the big picture goal every week is to try to open the scriptures in such a way that we are drawn closer to Christ as we go through several passages from the book of genesis and the month of December what i want to accomplish is that we will gain a deeper sense of joy seeing all that is ours in christ hopefully opening up new angles on the work of christ understanding the person of christ in a new way because we see what is written in genesis and understand him better i hope that when we sing of jesus this christmas season that we'll do so with a deeper sincerity a deeper longing for that great day when he will put all things right. Even as we go back and see what is wrong, that we'll have a greater longing for the day when Jesus puts all things right. I hope that when we pray, whether that's praying around the table with our families, at the kids' bedside at night, in your private prayer time, or together with the church, that we'll do so with a deeper sense of thanksgiving. Seeing the blessings that are ours in Christ, my, my goal is that as we face all the realities that life puts before us, we'll do so with a deeper understanding of what it means to be united to Christ, to walk with Christ through all the ups and downs of life, and all that that entails with a new sense of trusting Him, living in dependence upon Him, imitating Him, learning humility from Him. And that's why I want us to spend some time in Genesis, even though it's not the traditional text for the Christmas season, to go to Genesis and to see how our Savior is portrayed, how he is prefigured in these passages. This passage in chapter 3 in particular shows us a lot of firsts. We have the first sin. We then have the first blame shifting. It's the first temptation. It's the first confrontation. But also, it's the first promise. It's the first sign of God's mercy and grace towards his people. It's the first opportunity to see how does God respond when we, his children, sin against him. What does he do? We'll get to see God and his mercy dealing with the sin of our first parents. And what we see in this passage is that there is only one hope for those who are in sin. That we will see, hopefully, something of ourselves in Adam and Eve, this first couple, will see in them a mirror for the soul, and, and yet see that this is our problem also, and yet there's only one solution. And that solution is for God in Christ to deal with sin. And so this passage shows us a couple things. It's going to show us what went wrong, what came of it, and what God is going to do about it. What went wrong, what came of that, and what God is doing about it. In showing us what went wrong, this teaches us a lot about the nature of sin. It teaches us a lot of realities about what sin is, and here's two realities that we learn in this chapter. First, temptation to sin always begins with lies. Sin always begins with a lie, and usually it's lies about the nature and the character of God. And then second reality is that sin never delivers on its promises. But first, sin begins with lies. Look at verses 4 and 5. begins with the serpent saying to the woman you will not surely die it's an outright lie that, that's what the Lord has said it, on the day in which you eat the fruit of this tree you will surely die but the serpent said to the woman you will not surely die it's, it's a lie it's a bald faced lie from the serpent that leads to sin and this is always the reality this is always the reality in life is that sin always begins with a lie in fact, if we move back even to the first verse, where he says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree, any of the trees in the garden? You see, the, his very first move, it's almost subtle. He begins with this question. You see, it's not even an outright lie at this point, because he's just asking. Is this? He, he's just inquiring as to the facts of the case. And yet he's doing so very subtly in, in order to introduce doubt into their mind in order to get them thinking just a little bit differently, in order to get them questioning what God has said. Did God really say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And we know the answer is no. That's not what God said. God said you may eat of any tree of the garden except for the tree in the midst of the garden. But, But Satan is sneaky. And ever so sneakily, he confuses Adam and Eve. He makes them wonder. He plants the question in their mind, almost begins to, to lead them to a new way of thinking about this. Is this true? Is this the way God works? Don't so many temptations begin with the seemingly innocent question like that. Did God really say? You see that beautiful, shiny new sports car driving down the road in front of you. Did God really say that I shouldn't build up treasures on earth where moth and rust is destroyed? Because that's an awfully nice, shiny, fast treasure right there, and I wouldn't mind pursuing that. Perhaps you hear a a bit of juicy gossip, and and the question just gets planted in your mind, did did God really say that I should put others' needs ahead of my own, that I should be quick to listen and slow to speak? Did God really say those things? Because there's a, a temptation in my mind to pass along this juicy bit of gossip to tear others down and so attempt to build myself up. Perhaps there's just a number of cares and worries in your life and you're tempted to spend time mulling over those and worrying and wringing your hands and and Satan will plant that question in your mind. Did God really say to cast all of your cares on him because he cares for you? Did he really say not to be anxious about anything but in everything with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, to present your request to God? Kids, perhaps it's a place in school and a time when you're tempted to cheat on something. And the devil will just put that little thought in your mind, did God really say not to lie? Did he really say to pursue honesty and integrity in all things? See, the temptation to sin, it, it always begins with just these subtle little questions that cast a bit of doubt on what God has said. And therefore, it casts a little bit of doubt on who God is. Is God really good good? Does he really have your best interest at heart? Rather than encouraging you to trust in the Lord with all your heart, the, the evil one, he wants to tempt you to doubt those things. And so he's going to tell you lies. He's going to begin with lies about God. See, every sin begins with lies about God. Because Satan, he knows that God is good. He knows that God is one who loves those who sin against him. He's, he's one who welcomes strangers. And forgives their sins and adopts them into his family. And and he knows that if your mind is focused on these good realities of who God is, that if you are focused on the, the gospel truths, that if you are regularly enjoying communion with God in those things and meditating on all the goodness of God, that you're really not going to be very easy to tempt into sin. Because you're going to be living in the the reality of those of the goodness of God. And so what he has to do is to try to get you to think just a little bit different. To plant that seed of doubt in your mind. And that's the beginning of temptation. To think differently about God. To think maybe God is not always good. Maybe God doesn't have my best interest at heart. Maybe he wants my life to be hard. And you think, maybe there is a better life for me out there somewhere else other than what, in, in what the Lord wants for me. And he plants these seeds of doubt, and that's the beginning of temptation getting a foothold in our hearts. Satan wants to hijack the story right at the beginning. He wants to write a different script, a different ending, as it were. He wants to rewrite the character of God and to get Adam and Eve to see him differently than the way he is. Because he knows if Adam and Eve are living in joyful communion with God, if they're enjoying his presence, if they have a clear, full knowledge of God and his mercy, his righteousness, his justice, his grace, his love, if they know how satisfying communion with God is, they're not going to give in to sin. They're going to have this clear-headed view of of God says the good life is here and I trust him and he's good to me and I love him because he's honest. Then, Then you're going to follow him. And so to tempt you to sin, he has to plant lies in your heart. He has to plant lies. He has to get you to think somewhere in the back of your mind, you know, maybe God is holding out on me. Maybe there is more happiness out there somewhere else other than what the Lord wants for me. But this teaches us. Knowing God is the best defense against our sin. Knowing him, meditating on his goodness, meditating on our union with Christ and all that God has done for us in Christ, all of the heavenly blessings that are ours in him, of the best defenses for us, to know his goodness, to know his love towards us. That is what steals our our souls against temptation. To know the goodness that is ours in Christ, when when you know everything that is yours in him, there's no temptation to go after the the little, tiny, puny little joys that are offered in sin. It's when our hearts are blind to the goodness of God. It's when we don't spend time meditating on, on his mercy to us in Christ and this begins to fade from view. We're not so familiar with all his goodness and his mercy and his grace to us. And these other little joys of sin begin to look a little bit larger. Begin to look a little bit larger. And so we must, we must meditate then on the goodness of God in Christ so we're not susceptible to the lies that the enemy would tell us. We won't be susceptible, the second reality about sin not only does it begin with lies but it never delivers on its promises sin never delivers on its promises, look at this in verse 5 God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil what he promises Adam and Eve is that if they eat of the fruit of this tree, that they will gain new knowledge and in this new knowledge they'll be like God, they will know good and evil that's the promise and yet, verse 7 tells us that when they eat of the fruit, they do gain new knowledge, don't they? Suddenly they know that they're naked. That's what it says. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. It has to be one of the greatest letdowns of all time. Here are the promises that this, this knowledge that they gain will be like, like they are gods, that they are just like him, knowing good and evil. And instead, all that new knowledge brings is shame. All it brings is disaster. All it brings is is a a desire to flee then from the presence of God and from one another. It drives a a wedge between their communion with each other. Isn't this always the way that sin works? And that temptation is just just beginning to build up. We think, oh. We start to believe the promises that, that if we just would give in to this sin or that sin, if we would just listen to this little voice and just for a moment indulge ourselves it won't be that bad and think of the great joy that will be ours. And isn't it always true that immediately after giving in to temptation it's let you down. Sin never delivers on the promise that it that it holds out it, it promises that there will be so much more joy in this or that sin than you would ever find in Christ it promises life and fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness and glory and sin would always tell you that you can attain all of these things in other ways than through Christ but in fact it doesn't bring life it brings death it doesn't promise it doesn't deliver on the glory that it promises it just brings shame it doesn't bring satisfaction it brings emptiness and despair don't we know this from experience don't we know enough from experience that, that we've, we've walked this road before? We've gone down this path and, and given in to temptation and indulged in the, the desire for some sin, one or the other, and yet immediately we, we know that it, it's not going to deliver what it promised. It's not going to bring us that joy and that life and that happiness. In fact, it always lets us down. It never delivers on its promises. And yet, even though we know that, somehow we remain especially gullible when it comes to sin's promises, don't we? Don't, aren't we slow to learn this lesson? We need to, to be quicker to, to get a hold of this, to know that, that the promises that sin holds are always lies. It will never deliver. It will never deliver. I know it's easy to read a, a chapter like this and to think, why them? You know, if it had been someone else, maybe they could have held out against temptation a little bit longer. Certainly we could have done a little bit better, held out longer against temptation. And I think we're probably wrong in that. I think one thing this chapter does is it, is it exposes our our weakness against temptation. We're quick to give in to temptation. We're not as strong as we think we are. But we think we have what the strength that we need in ourselves to give battle temptation, we think we won't give in, we think we don't need accountability, we think we don't need prayer, but I think this passage ought to be of use to humble us. If this one couple, Adam and Eve, that to this point was not even fallen in sin, had no experience, no practice in this, and yet they gave in so quickly, don't we also? It should humble us and give us a more realistic understanding of ourselves, a more realistic understanding Humble understanding of what it means to be human, to know that we're not sovereign even over our own lives, of how badly we need the mercy of God given to us through the gift of His Spirit, how dependent we are. If this passage can humble us and give us a new sense of dependence on Christ. And yet we see in this passage not only these realities of sin, but but we see what does sin lead to? What does sin... Lead to. And, and what we see in this chapter is actually two things. We see both judgment on sin, but we also see God's grace. We see both in, in his response. We might be expecting that God would come just in, in judgment against Adam and Eve, but that's actually not what we see. It's not even the first thing that we see. In verse 8, immediately after it has described the result of sin, that, that their eyes are open now. Immediately they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Even here is the Lord entering into a garden that is that is now no longer this paradise that it has once been. Now it's a fallen garden. Fallen with sin, human sin, human temptation, and yet he comes into that space. We see God for the first time entering into the place of sin and going and pursuing Adam and Eve, even in their sin. He pursues them. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. He goes to them. And so we see God walking into that, choosing to enter into the garden that's filled with sin in order to give grace to his people. He calls out to them. He calls them to himself says, where are you? God knows where they are. God wasn't without that knowledge yet. He calls to them. He initiates. He speaks to his people, even in their sins. And he's going to then come, and and we hear that he will come in judgment, and he's going to speak curses. He's going to speak a curse against the serpent, against the woman, and then against Adam. And yet, notice that in verse 15, this is the the verse that we know so well, this is the verse that theologians call the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, the beginning, the first promise of the good news. And did you notice that that actually comes before God's judgment comes on Adam and Eve. Before he even gets to speaking the curses about them, already he has given them the promise. Already the promise that he's going to do something about it. Verse 15 I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The promise here is that God is going to do something about this sin. This is actually more promise than it is judgment. It's judgment on the serpent, on the devil, for bringing temptation and sin into the world. But in as much as it is judgment against him, that is good news for us. That God is going to bring judgment on our enemies, that's good news. And he says that one of the descendants of this woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Just in seed form this little promise that that if that were all we had we wouldn't be able to make much of that and yet we see that promise develop throughout the story of the scriptures we see that god keeps his word he's faithful to the promise and so the line of eve then it begins the story of her offspring becomes a family which becomes a nation which grows and grows as the nation of Israel, until one of her descendants in the person of Jesus Christ will fulfill this promise, that he would be the one who would eventually crush the head of the serpent. And yet, right here, immediately after the first sin, it's as though the first thing God does is to come into the garden with words of grace, with words of hope to the people, that yes, you are weak against your temptation. You are easily fallen into sin, Don't put too much hope in yourself because you will let yourself down. But immediately the words that he speaks are, one is coming who's going to crush that serpent. One is going to come who will deal with the problem of sin and temptation. Although you in yourself are weak against it. And that is a problem because that leads you away from the Lord. He says, I will do something. I will bring one from the offspring of the woman who will deal with. And see, this is hope, this is good news, and it's good news in the face of sin. See, we can't get to the the real good news of the Christmas story and the hope of the gospel in Christ until we begin with the reality that, that it is a word that is spoken into a world filled with sin. It's not just generic hope of good news, hope that there's going to be a happy ending someday. It's hope that sin is going to be defeated, that the devil is going to be defeated, That we who find ourselves prone to sin, prone to leave the God we love, there's hope for us because sin will be no more. We can't really get to the gospel hope until we believe we are sinners and we need someone to deal with our sin. It is the good news for those of us who are weak against temptations to sin. And this is God's immediate response. Immediately, he hasn't even finished handing out all of the, the punishments for this sin before he's already offering promises of hope. It seems as though it's just the nature of God to, to come and to be gracious towards his people, to come in his mercy. This is the first promise that God is going to send someone. We can't miss in this passage the, just the quickness of God's mercy, how quickly it, it goes from the sin itself to saying, "Ah, we hear the sound of the Lord coming. No sooner are they realizing just what has happened and their eyes are open and they hear God coming to them with a word of hope. God doesn't allow them to wallow in their sin. He doesn't make them sort of wait with, with sort of this tense waiting of trying to, to go over in their mind what's going to happen, what is the Lord going to do. He's, he's not waiting until they are, are getting their lives back in order. Immediately upon the completion of that sin, God is coming to them. God is calling to Adam, where are you? Where are you? Come back. And so we see the reality of sin, and we see what it does, but we also see what will be the long-term hope. We see something in this passage. We see that communion with God is lost, and then communion with God is gained. Communion with God is is lost in this passage. In fact, here's what one scholar says about this passage in, in looking at, Chapter 3 in the story of the fall as a whole, he says, In Israel, while there was undoubtedly a recognition of the inherent nature of sin, the biggest problem of the fall was not concentrated in the change of human nature or the heart condition, but in the loss of access to the presence of God, the reduced ability to participate in the blessings, If Israelites ever thought about paradise lost, I would not expect their thoughts to be filled with the pleasant living conditions they enjoyed, the provision of their every need, the harmony among all the creatures, and so on. The overwhelming loss was not paradise. It was God. Throughout all the rest of the Old Testament, one never hears talk of regaining the comfort of Eden, but regaining access to God's presence was paramount. He says that the real loss, the real punishment, in this incident it's not so much even in the the curses that the Lord hands out but it's in what comes next it's that God recognizes that it's no longer appropriate for sinful fallen tempted human beings to live in the garden and to have unfettered access to the tree of life and so he uh, kicks them out he evicts them from the garden of Eden takes them back into the wilderness and puts a flaming sword to guard the gate back into the way to Eden And and he says that the great loss of this chapter, it's not only the entrance of sin, it's not now the fallen condition of the human heart. The great overarching loss that all of those point to is that Adam and Eve lost communion with God. That they no longer walk in his presence. That there's no longer this, this communion day by day, this fellowship with God, walking in the cool of the day. That's what paradise is about. It's not about pleasant living conditions. It's not about having all of our needs met or getting along well with one another, he says, what made that paradise was the communion they enjoyed with God himself. And the result of sin is that that communion was broken. That they were now evicted from the garden and no longer had access to God. And the reason was because of sin. Because God is a holy and righteous God. So holy that he cannot abide to have sin in his presence. He cannot abide to have sinners in his presence. And so that's why throughout the Old Testament we see Moses being told that no man could see God's face and live. That's why we see Isaiah crying out, woe is me, when he finds himself in the very throne room of God. He said that for him was not this joyful, special, beautiful experience. That was terrifying because he knew he was a sinner. He said, I am a man of unclean lips. He knew if a sinner was to come into the presence of God, he would be destroyed. He knew that that for sinful men and women there is no communion with God. And so, therefore, as we begin to look ahead, as we begin to say what is the hope of this promise that one is coming who will deal with the problem, that means the work of Jesus is going to be to reverse what was lost in the fall. If what was lost was most especially communion with God, then the work of the Redeemer is going to be to restore us to communion with God. See, here's the thing. We often think of the fall and redemption, particularly in terms of our sin, which is appropriate. But we can go a step beyond and say, it was our sin, what made it so bad is that it broke communion with God. And what makes it so sweet to have our sins forgiven is that when your sins are forgiven, you may be restored to communion with God. Now you again may have access into the presence of God to to walk with him in the cool of the day, to enjoy unfettered fellowship, because the one thing that has separated you from God is your sin. And to be able to look to Christ and to know that at the cross, Jesus has taken your sins on himself and given you his righteousness. The beauty of that is that that now you have access to come with confidence before God. You may come before him with confidence in prayer. Why? Because of who you are and what you've done? No. Because through Christ, all of your sins have been forgiven. Through Christ, each and every one of your sins is cast into the depths of the sea. They no longer are a barrier between you and your God. They no longer separate you. That's why Paul will write in 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 18, he says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. See, he says the big picture of what God is doing in the gospel is that he is at work to reconcile men and women to himself. How does he do that? It's by not counting trespasses against them. Sins, iniquities, those things which have separated you from the presence of God, says through Christ, God does not count those against you anymore. They're forgiven. They're wiped away that means you may be reconciled to your God. That's the good news of the gospel. It goes beyond dealing with sin and wrath to what that produces. It produces communion with God. It produces joyful fellowship so that we can again be in the presence of God. Or again, Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. He says, let's take advantage. We know that our sins now are forgiven in Christ. That gives us access to the presence of God. Brothers, let us draw near with full confidence, with full assurance, in a true heart, drawing near unto God in Christ. Because fellowship is now restored. What was lost in the garden is restored in Christ. And here's the the end of the story, as long as we're starting in the beginning, let's end with the end of Revelation chapter 21, when it says of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, behold the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. See, what the work of Christ is, is to restore us to communion with our God. To work towards this place where at the end he will say, Behold, the dwelling place of, of God is with man. He is with his people. He will be our God and we will be his people and we will dwell together forever in full communion and full fellowship. All because of what Christ has done. Forgiving sin, dealing with the punishment that was ours, restoring us to the joy of the garden that's what i want our hope to be as we prepare our hearts for christmas that's what i want us to focus our eyes on as we're thinking of the coming of christ to say what we need is someone who can restore us to god someone who can bring us back into his presence we can't do that on our own we have no right in ourselves because we are full of sin and yet christ forgives all of our sins and so Let's put our hope and our trust and our faith not in ourselves, but only in Christ. Jesus is your way back into the gracious presence of God. That's the hope. That's the hope of Christmas and the hope of Christ ever since Genesis 3, from the very first sin when God would come with his word of hope and his word of mercy to say, he will fix this problem. Let's pray together. Father, we give You thanks for Christ. We give You thanks for Your Word which gives us hope, which opens our eyes to see our Savior. Lord, we do pray that You will make us wise and in doing so that You will not allow us to trust in our own strength, in our own goodness, but Father, may we rest in Christ. And when we are tempted to despair, would You put our eyes back on our Savior Jesus Christ? When we are tempted to worry, Would you point us towards Christ? May we claim by faith all that he has done on our behalf. And may we, with full assurance of faith and full boldness and confidence, enter into your presence with worship and praise and adoration to find all of the comfort that is ours, all of the joy and the glory that is yours and yet you have invited us into. We pray all of these things in the precious name of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. our song of reflection.